sufficiency of scripture. <clears throat> I'm going to explain in a few minutes why just going through all these doctrines one at a time and getting them straight is so important because you think, oh, this is good, everybody agrees with this, we believe this, everybody believes this, and all of a sudden, pow, somebody comes along and just denies it or contradicts it. And I'm going to mention three writers in the evangelical world who have just abandoned this principle in, uh, in the last few years, and I'll explain why. But let's uh, go on. This is picking up from last time. The outline is back on chairs at the two corners. So if you, have, if you don't have an outline, maybe you should just go back and get one right now. The sufficiency of Scripture is the Bible enough for what, for what uh, God wants us to think or do. We, we talked last time quite a bit. Oh, here's schedule. So we finished this up today. Next week, I start talking about how do we know that God exists and can we know God rather than just know about him. Uh, February 26th and March 5th, those two topics. And then probably about March 12th, we start talking about the incommunicable attributes of God. So that's, that's where we're going. Okay, sufficiency of scripture basically means that uh, God's given us enough for what he wants. wants to, these, are enough of the, these are all the words that he's going to give us. Uh, for our lives today. So um, the sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history. I mean, when they just had the first five books of the Bible, that was enough for them then. And then when they got the Old Testament, that was enough for them then. But then when Jesus came, you needed more than the Old Testament. You needed the story of Jesus' life in the Gospels and then the interpretation of that in the Epistles. And that it now, now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. He's made provision in this, in the Bible, for every good work that he wants us to do. So last time we were here, two weeks ago, we talked about this. It's able to make us wise to salvation, the Bible is, and uh, it gives us new life. We've been born again through the word of God. It's sufficient also for living the Christian life. It equips us for every good work. If, we're, if we walk in the law of the Lord, we're to be, we are blameless. That is, this is all that God requires of us, no more than this. And so that's a wonderful teaching. And that, uh, those verses there that say the scriptures are given so we may be equipped for every good work and that if we walk in the law of the Lord, we're blameless. Those and others like them, those are what give the idea of that this is enough, this is sufficient. So that means uh, there's good news, point B. We can find all that God has said on particular topics, and we can find answers to our questions. Um, and so this is the Reformation doctrine that was, used to that was described with the phrase sola scriptura, the Bible alone. Martin Luther and others following him emphasized that as uh, in opposition to the Roman Catholic view that it was a Bible plus tradition. The Bible plus the teaching of the church. And, Martin, and that's where you get all your doctrine. And Luther said, no, it was the Bible alone, sola scriptura. And that was a Reformation principle that really was a distinctive characteristic that gave rise to Protestantism uh, as one of the reasons we are uh, here in a, in a Protestant church as opposed to a Catholic church today. Um, now, we spend a lot of time, and I'm not going to spend more time on that. Now, what about other means of guidance? I do believe that God uses subjective impressions of his will to guide us, even reports of what God has brought to mind, but these can never equal scripture and authority. We, uh, we test them and evaluate them, and they can, 
we can make mistakes on them. We talked about that last time. Um, and then we talked about the fact that God may guide you individually to do something based on subjective guidance, but don't force that on all other Christians in your church. Um, and I gave the example of, well, fasting on a certain day or not reading the Sunday paper or whatever, not watching television or something. Okay, if God convicts you of that, but don't try to force that on everybody else. Okay, and then uh, good news. This is where we ended last time. It's possible to find what the Bible says. You want to know what the Bible says about how to conduct your business? Well, it may be work, but it's here. It's not in a lot of other books. What the Bible says about how to raise children, what the Bible says about marriage and husbands and wives, and what the Bible says about angels or any other topic that we're interested in, it's possible to get all that. And that's good news because it means that we can focus our search in one place. Although now, this is where that was where we left off last time. So now we come here to two points having to do with what about history? That is, what about church history? What about all those Christians for thousands of years in the history of the church? Don't we pay attention to what they thought? And I want to say, yes, that's important. And so the history of the church may help us understand what God says to us in the Bible, but never in church history has God added to the teachings or commands of the Bible. So when I teach on the doctrine of the Trinity, and we'll get to that in a few weeks here, I go back and look at what happened in the history of the church, and there were arguments about the doctrine of the Trinity and people debating back and forth, and then there was this Nicene Creed in 325 A.D. that kind of summarized what people finally came to agree on about the Trinity. And that's helpful for us so we don't go and try to reinvent the wheel and kind of do all that work all over again. We read it and we say, okay, I can see that argument, that argument, and I can see why they came to that conclusion. That doesn't mean we have to agree with them, but it means that it really is a help to us. So it helps us understand I think helps us understand what God says to us in the Bible. Um, but that doesn't mean that we go beyond the Bible to add to this. Now I'm going to mention that there are some writers publishing books with InterVarsity Press, some evangelical writers today, challenging that and saying we, we can go beyond the Bible. We, we can look past the Bible to later developments, and those are our standards. But I, I think they're wrong in saying that. Oops. Number five our search for answers to theological or ethical questions is not a search to find out what various believers have thought in the history of the church, but it's a quest to find and understand what God himself says to us in his own words, which are found in Scripture and only in Scripture. Um, uh, again, that has to do with church history, and I'm going to mention another book by InterVarsity Press where this guy says, we can't decide what the Bible means. Let's just find out what other people in history have thought, and that's what our doctrine will be. And my, my response is, no, wait a minute. Our standard is the Bible alone, and people have had various ideas in history. Um, and we just don't find history and then leave it at that. If you, but, I, but the thing about um, doctoral studies in theology at um, not at evangelical schools, but doctoral studies in theology at more secular schools today, um, if you want to go to um, do a PhD in theology at Harvard, say, or 
or at Duke or someplace like that, uh, or Princeton, um, they wouldn't want you to do the kind of thing I'm doing in this class, where I look at a whole bunch of Bible verses on different topics and try to get a conclusion. Even if you did it with a whole lot of skill and knowledge of Greek and Hebrew and stuff, they wouldn't think you could put it all together and anybody could figure out what the Bible says because it was a lot of different authors, different times. They probably had different views. And so a PhD in theology at one of these schools, you'd study, just maybe do a thesis on what Martin Luther thought about some doctrine or what John Calvin or what Augustine thought about some doctrine or, or Aquinas or some other famous person in history. And there's value in that, and people gain understanding, but um, I don't think that's our primary source of theology. I think it's finding things in the Bible itself and then, and then teaching those and understanding those. So uh, we're searching to find what God himself says. All right, now, I just want to say in point C here something about, well, wait, well, wait and you say that the, the, the Bible is sufficient, but wait a minute. People didn't always have all the Bible. They just had part of it at times. Well, and so I agree. That's just how it happened. It developed. And we talked in the class a number of months ago about how the canon grew and different parts of it were accepted. And uh, it started with the Ten Commandments, words of God that he gave to his people, that he wrote. And then the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I just finished reading Leviticus this morning. And uh, that I've been kind of working through, and 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 uh, it was all these things that God told Moses about how to do these sacrifices and these offerings, and this how to make the temple and all that, and and Moses wrote all those things down, and so the Bible was growing, and then you get prophets where it grew, <clears throat> but at each stage of redemptive history, that means the history from Genesis to Revelation, at each stage it was enough for what God's people needed at that stage. And so when the Old Testament was done, it was enough for what God's people needed until the Messiah came. And so what I think we should say there is God has not spoken to mankind any more words which he requires us to believe or obey other than those which we now have in the Bible. The doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture does not imply that God can't add any more words to those he has spoken. It rather implies that man cannot add on his own initiative any words to those that God has already spoken. We can't take it on ourselves to add, but then God would speak to Joshua, he'd speak to Samuel, he'd speak to Isaiah, and then there would be words added, and that's how it grew. <clears throat> and God could tell his people that his words to them were sufficient at different points in the history of redemption. And so Deuteronomy 29.29 was true for just the first five books of the Bible at the time it was written, but then I think it's a principle that's broader, and it's true for all the Bible for us today. And that verse, kind of a well-known verse, says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. He hasn't told us everything. Millions of things he hasn't told us. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So the things that are revealed, the things that he's given us, that's to help us believe him and obey him. Then after the assembling of the books of the New Testament canon, what we have now in the New Testament, no further central redemptive acts of God in history have occurred. Thus, no further words of God have been given to us to record and, uh, and interpret those acts for us. What I mean, central acts of God in redemptive history. I believe that God answers prayer in my life. God answers prayer in your life. So God is still working today. But those aren't 
the things that we write down in the Bible for all God's people to know about for all time. Okay? So God answers prayer in Jerry's life. Well, okay. And that's good, and we remember that, in fact, uh, with the heart situation. I'm just picking you out as an example. And that's wonderful, and we remember it, but we don't add it to, we don't add another chapter to the book of Revelation and say, God answered, we prayed for Jerry for his heart condition, because um, we don't want to add to the books of the Bible anymore because the central things that God did for his people for all time, those have come to an end, they culminated in Jesus and the life of, of Jesus, and, uh, and then when the apostles, after Jesus appointed the apostles to establish the church, so now it's done. So no further words of God have been given after that, uh, because the, the greatest revelation and God's central acts for all his people for all time came to culmination in Christ. And, and no more of those central acts of God are going to happen until, until Christ returns. So now here are some of those passages that support what I was just saying about uh, God just told people, don't take it on yourself to add any words. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. In him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. We just can't take it on ourselves to do that, to add to the words of God. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words, God will take away his share in the tree of life. So uh, leave these words as they are. Don't add to them or take from them. Now, P.S., can God speak to you and guide you today in different ways in prayer and things like as you pray? Yes, I think so. But, but we're never sure about those things, and we can make mistakes about those things. And we don't write them down as part of our Bible. It's just part of the way the Holy Spirit works in our life. But the central words of God for all his people for all time that we make as our standard and our test of everything else, this is it. Don't add. Okay, so that's the sufficiency of Scripture. Now that works out in a number of applications for our Christian life. One is, this should encourage us. As we discover what God would have us think about a particular doctrinal issue or do in a particular situation, everything God has to tell us about that question is found in Scripture. <clears throat> so that's good. Um, uh, you know, this question of human cloning came up a few years ago. And is it right or wrong? And, and you know, you look up in a concordance, cloning, cloning. Don't find it in the Bible. Does the Bible say anything, though? Are there principles about how God is the one who created life and what human life is and the uniqueness of us as persons and things like that? Are there principles that might apply to human cloning? Yes. And what happens in that topic, as in a lot of other topics, is people first think, I can't think of anything the Bible says about that. And then they think, oh, well, you know, there's this idea. And they think, oh, well, you know, there's this principle. And then they talk with some other people, and somebody else says, well, you know, but I was thinking, what about this idea? And, this? and pretty soon there are more things that people discover that are here that apply to the question of human cloning, genetic engineering, um, sort of modern controversies like that. Um, yeah, what are some other controversies? Um, um, downloading copyrighted music from the Internet. 
uh, yeah, there's stuff about stealing in the Bible and uh, the question of, and stuff about being subject to the government and things like that. So even though there are new subjects that weren't specifically talked about in the Bible, after a while you get principles that are there, and that's good. Now, I'm not saying that God is putting instructions in his word on how to bake a chocolate cake because it's just not there. You better go get a cookbook to find out how to do that um, or how to build a, a bulldozer or a tractor or a locomotive. But I am saying that there's a lot in there about the attitudes that we use when we pursue those things and the purposes for them and the moral standards that should guard and guide what we do in those areas. All right? Is that, so that is an encouragement to me because I think you know, if there's a if there's a question or a, or a dilemma or uh, a controversial area in life that comes up, this is where I want to look and find the answers, and find find the principles that apply, as opposed to just throwing it out and saying, "Well, I don't I don't think the Bible says anything about that. I'll go make up my own mind." Um, I remember reading an editorial in a Christian journal about capital punishment one time. And the guy said, oh, the Bible says some things about justice and some things about mercy, so we can't decide. He puts it, sorry, and he puts it aside and uh, just says, but now here's some statistics and here's what we'll decide. And so my thought is, wait a minute, don't do that. Don't disregard that. There's a lot in here about human life and government and life and death and punishment and work harder at it. Don't give up. So that's um, rather than just discarding it. Okay, but the Bible doesn't answer all the questions we might think of. For instance, order of worship. There's nothing in the Bible that says first you have an opening hymn, and then you have a prayer, and then you read the Bible, and then you do the sermon. There's nothing like that. Um, uh, and, um, and so there, God leaves us to just kind of ordinary common sense or whatever helps edification is the general principle. All right, then, frequent practice in searching the Scripture for guidance I think leads to increasing ability to find accurate, carefully formulated answers to our problems and questions. That's why as we go on in the Christian life and have more years of experience in the Christian life, we become faster at this. A new Christian, if you say, well, now find what the Bible says about raising children, um, a new Christian might be kind of hard-pressed to do that, wouldn't know too much about where to look. But if I asked many of you, well, you'd know there are passages about parents and fathers and mothers and, and, and sons and daughters and things like that. And, and uh, we get better at doing this and better at interpreting it over, over time in our Christian lives. This also, this principle of the sufficiency of Scripture, reminds us that we are to add nothing to Scripture and consider no other writings of equal value to Scripture. For instance, the Book of Mormon or Science and Health with a Key to the Scriptures. Those, um, what I think are cults, Christian science or Mormonism, they say, oh yeah, we take the Bible as our authority plus this other book, Book of Mormon, or Bible plus Mary Baker Eddy's book, Science and Health with the Key to the Scriptures. But then what happens is the other book really has the priority over the Bible. And uh, once you do the Bible plus, then pretty soon the plus becomes the thing by which people uh, determine uh, what they think the Bible says, and then the Bible doesn't have ultimate authority. Now, I just wanted to mention, because this is something I've been working on right now in my own writing, that there are certain authors who, in practice, nullify the sufficiency of Scripture in their approach to the Bible. 
And uh, one is William J. Webb. Um, in his book, Women, or Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, published by InterVarsity Press, it was interesting, InterVarsity Press in the United States published it. I was surprised that they published it. When I was in England about three years ago, I was talking to the head of InterVarsity Press in England, which is a separate corporation, and they decided not to publish it. And I'm glad, because I think it's, a, it's not a good book. But I'm going to mention to you um, what uh, I'm going to mention to you the uh, the argument of Webb. Just let me um, let's see. Webb is professor of New Testament at Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario, Canada. And um, I kind of read a criticism of his book at a, at the Evangelical Theological Society three years ago, and then two years ago he read a criticism of my criticism of his book, and we kind of talked back and forth. Um, so this is a current controversy. William Webb has this, and he's a Dallas Seminary graduate, and the foreword to the book is written by Daryl Bach, who's a professor at Dallas. That makes it all the more surprising. William Webb has a trajectory hermeneutic. Do you know what a trajectory is? If you fire a rifle, the trajectory is the path that the bullet goes on to its target. And um, he has a trajectory hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is a, a method for interpreting the Bible. So he's got a trajectory method for interpreting the Bible and applying it to us today. And it's what he calls the XYZ principle. Um, and uh, let me put, I'll just kind of draw a picture here on the board. The XYZ principle. Is this, you can see this. Okay. X, Y, Z. X is what the ancient culture thought about something. X is what the Bible says. Z, or Y is what the Bible says. Z is the ultimate ethic that the Bible was aiming toward but didn't always reach. And the title of the book, Slaves, Women, Homosexuals, tells the three main topics that he's talking about. He says slavery. Ancient culture had slavery that was really awful. The Bible corrected it somewhat, so it had better treatment of slaves. Gunter, can you see that? You can see it now? You can hear me, all right. X is the ancient culture. Y is what the Bible says. But he said, wait a minute, the Bible just kind of improved the life of slaves, but it didn't abolish slavery. It was aiming at it, and later now we see that slavery should be abolished, so we've got a better ethic than the Bible. Then what does he say about homosexuality? The ancient culture sometimes approved of homosexuality, but the Bible does not approve of homosexuality, so it's counter to the ancient culture. 
So the ultimate ethic is the same. So he says homosexuality is wrong. So you see, he's kind of set us up to think, okay, slavery is wrong and homosexuality is wrong because he got this system for explaining two of them. And the argument on slavery makes people think, okay, we, okay, okay, uh, Bible, maybe the Bible approves slavery, but we've got to get beyond that. And that's, I'm going to challenge that in a minute. Now he comes to the question of whether women should be pastors and elders in the church. Ancient culture mistreated women. The Bible improved the status of women, treated them with more honor, but still wouldn't let them be pastors or elders. And he says, you read 1 Timothy 2, women aren't to teach you have authority over men in the Bible teaching of the church. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, only men are to be elders. He says, at that time, the Bible did not allow women to be pastors or elders. But just like we go beyond the Bible for slavery, so we're now going beyond the Bible for the role of women in the church. And today, women can be pastors and elders, even though that's different from what the Bible says for its time. See the idea? Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, Wayne says you can prove about anything. Now, um, my first response to Webb is to say, Christians argued against slavery before they ever heard of your system, Bill. In fact, I used to go to Park Street Church in Boston where William Lloyd Garrison in the 1830s started preaching his abolitionist sermons using the Bible to argue against slavery. And he didn't say you have to go beyond the Bible. And then I started to look back into other anti-slavery literature before the Civil War in the 19th century. And what did I find? I found a really widely published book by a man named Theodore Weld, The Bible Against Slavery, 1838. That's before 1860, before 1861, the Civil War. 1838, The Bible Against Slavery. What does Weld say? Do you have to go beyond the Bible? No. Weld says, Use the Old Testament, Exodus 21:16. He that stealeth a man and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. Webb says American slavery is doing what the Bible, even in the Old Testament, forbids. And then, it said, and then he argued from the fact that all men are in the image of God and it's morally wrong to treat any human being as property. And then he said, the Bible says you shall not steal. Here I'm going to quote William Weld, 1838. The Eighth Commandment forbids taking of any part of that which belongs to another. Slavery takes the whole. Does the same Bible which prohibits the taking of anything from him sanction the taking of everything? Does it thunder wrath against the man who robs his neighbor of a cent, yet commission him to rob his neighbor of himself? Slaveholding is the highest possible violation of the Eighth Commandment. Okay? So, Webb is just wrong when he says the Bible approves of slavery, at least slavery that was going on in America in the 19th century. It's just not true. I know some slaveholders tried to use the Bible to support slavery, but they lost the argument. And others used it to oppose slavery, and they won the argument. The other thing is, 
when the Bible uses the word slave, it, it's a, we, we put in the footnote of the ESV, Greek bondservant, and the New American Standard and the New King James translate it bondservant, which I think a little better, because it really wasn't like slavery that we think of in the 19th century. Uh, slaves in the Roman Empire were really, uh, the Greek word is doulos, and they were like a bond, they were what we would call a bondservant. That is, you had to work for a certain period of time for one employer. You couldn't go get another job someplace else. You were, you were legally bound to that employer. You couldn't change jobs. But there were extensive laws regulating the treat treatment of bondservants. Bondservants could own their own property. They normally purchased their freedom by about age 30. They often held positions of significant responsibility, such as teachers, physicians, nurses, managers of estates, retail merchants, and business executives. And I just note the parable of the talents, where Jesus says it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants, or slaves, doulas, and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, another one, each according to his ability. A talent was 20 years' wages for a laborer. And I just multiplied out, you say $10 an hour for a whole year, that's $20,000. 20 years wages, that's $400,000. A talent was about $400,000 in today's money. And a master entrusts his slave or his servant with $400,000 or another with two talents, another with five talents, that's $2 million. And then he goes away to a far country. This is entrusting him with tremendous freedom and responsibility so that that idea of a bondservant, you couldn't change employers, but there was protection, there was responsibility. And no, the Bible didn't immediately rule that out, but it gave principles that gradually abolished it. It was the most common kind of employment in the first century. So um, I don't think you need the Bible. I don't think you need web system to argue against slavery. I think you can just take the Bible itself. Now I come back to this. My argument is the sufficiency of Scripture is that this is our standard. Right here, what the Bible says. Not going beyond it to some ultimate ethic. I am bound to, if I'm going to oppose slavery, which Theodore Weld did, William Lloyd Garrison did, and I would just in that argument that I gave a minute ago, I have to argue it from what the Bible itself teaches. I can't say, hey, that, that was a bad moral standard, we'll go beyond it, and our ultimate ethic is this. You see the danger in that? Because then the standard is now, it's, it's, it's not the Bible, it's where you think the Bible was headed. So I, I don't know if I'm making sense or not. I think you're, you're tracking with me. Um, he's abandoned the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura. He's going to the development beyond the Bible. But uh, I'll tell you, this can get you in a lot of trouble. I'll tell you what Roman Catholics could say, for instance. They could say, hmm, you want to see development within the Bible to a later point? Well, here's what you do. You take uh, Jesus. Here's, uh, Jesus didn't talk much about church officers at all. And then you get in Paul's epistles, you get elders and deacons. Where are we going? No officers, a few officers. Ah, how about cardinals, bishops, and the pope? How's that for a trajectory? 
In fact, you must know the New Testament was headed that way because that's what actually happened. Now here's our standard. I'll have to join a Roman Catholic church. <laughs> or, or try another one. Jesus gave one reason for divorce, adultery. Paul gave another one, abandonment. Ah, what's this thing? You get divorced for any reason you want. Like the rabbis who said you could get a divorce if, if your wife cooked a bad meal. <laughs> I'm, with this, this opens up to any, any... Who decides what this ultimate ethic is? Well, it's, the, it's whoever happens to be doing the interpreting, and it's just very subjective. But, but, but this is trajectory hermeneutics, and your standard is where you think the Bible's going. And so my response to William Webb is, if the Bible says that women shouldn't be pastors or elders, but elders should be the husband of one wife, and, and um, that they should be restricted to men, then let's obey it. If you agree, William Webb, that it says that, don't go to some ultimate ethic that contradicts the Bible. All right? That was my argument, anyway. But I'm just mentioning, this is InterVarsity Press. This is a book that's endorsed by Daryl Bach of Dallas Seminary, New Testament professor. He's a friend of mine. We were on the executive committee with the ETS together, but I don't think he should have endorsed that book. Can I ask about that? I don't know why he did. William Webb is a former student, I guess. And um, other trajectory arguments I'll just mention quickly. Uh, R.T. France, uh, former principal of Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, which is an evangelical study center and college in Oxford, women in the church's ministry, he also uses a trajectory hermeneutic. And David Thompson, Asbury Seminary professor of Old Testament, also uses a trajectory hermeneutic. Same thing. The Bible didn't have women pastors, but we can go beyond the Bible and have them today. So it's in this controversy... <sighs> It's in this controversy where the culture and the Bible, I think, are colliding and having um, teaching different things that people are looking for a way to get around what the Bible teaches. There's another, um, another way that this happens, and that is uh, Kevin Giles. He is an Australian vicar or pastor in an Anglican church in Australia. This is also published by InterVarsity Press here in the United States, The Trinity and Subordinationism, The Doctrine of God and the Contemporary Gender Debate. I had argued in previous writings that in the, in the Trinity, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit equal in deity, but they have different roles. And the Father has authority over the Son. He sends the Son into the world, and he sits on the throne, and the Son is at his right hand. So there's difference in role, but equal in deity in the Trinity. And my argument was, in marriage, you can have a husband have a leadership role, but husband and wife are equal in personhood and equal in value and equal in importance, just as in God. The father and son are equal, but there's different role. So that's an argument from a parallel with the Trinity. So along comes Kevin Giles and publishes a book criticizing me and some other people, saying, you know, this doctrine of the Trinity stuff, actually people can make the Bible say anything they want on the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, so the Bible can be read in more than one way, therefore he thinks doctrine should be proven by appeal to church history, and then his appeal to church history, I think, is very flawed, but his whole point in an InterVarsity Press book is we can't understand the doctrine of the Trinity from the Bible. Let's see what people said in church history and make that our standard. Again, that's not the sufficiency of Scripture. That's using history as your standard. 
So I don't think that's a good idea. Others who deny the sufficiency of Scripture today, people who decide disputed ethical matters based on what they experience or what they feel is right rather than on what the Bible says. Or people who say the Bible is so hard to understand we can't decide an important question based on appeals to Scripture. That was that editorial in Christianity Today on capital punishment. Nobody can decide what the Bible says about capital punishment. Let's see if it deters crime and if it's fair. Uh, And so then we go to sociology. And I think, wait a minute, Mr. Editorial Writer, I thought that our standard was the Bible. I thought that we are depending on the sufficiency of Scripture and that God has given us enough here to know what we need to do. Or here's another approach. Sarah Sumner, who teaches at Azusa Pacific uh, University, is a theology professor there and a former student of mine from Trinity, uh, argues, you know, people just decide whatever verses they want to be prior or most important in, um, in a controversial issue, and then that's that's how they come to their conclusions. And um, so we just have to decide which verses we're going to make primary and then come to our own conclusions. And R.T. France, uh, again, who is on the NIV Translation Committee, former principal of this evangelical school in England, Wycliffe Hall, uh, he says that too. We just have to decide which verses have hermeneutical priority, and then once we do that, then the other verses have to be subordinate. My answer is, no, wait a minute. You can't just choose some verses and say they rule over the other verses. You have to account for all the verses and have a teaching that um, that takes them all into account. And then another denial of the sufficiency of Scripture is more liberal scholars, or what I would call evangelical left scholars, who deny that you can find Christian doctrine just by going to Scripture. They say the process must be much more complex. History, philosophy, experience all play a role, and here's the key, only experts can understand it. And I'm, I'm afraid in the area where I teach, in systematic theology, in that field, I'm afraid there is a little bit of this in some seminaries where I've just sensed it sometimes or I've seen it sometimes in some writings or some presentations. Theology is so complex that you poor students can't understand it at all. Just let me tell you what, do you see what I'm, that, that attitude? And, um, and you haven't gotten all the schooling that I have, so don't ever expect to understand it. I'll just give you the answers. Now, I'm caricaturing. I'm exaggerating, but I'm wondering if I haven't sensed that attitude a little bit. And it comes from saying, well, you've got your Bible, but we've got to have more than the Bible. You really need a doctorate in philosophy, and, and you need to have just years of experience in reading church history before you can ever say what the Bible says about anything. And when my book, Systematic Theology, came out, there were a couple of reviews that were kind of taking that approach. Why does Grudem push so much emphasis on going to the Bible to get doctrines? Isn't it much more complicated than that? And my answer is, well, yeah, we have to pay attention to what people have said in church history and things like that if they've got arguments. But those arguments should help us. We should help us see why we should see a verse one way or another. They don't take precedence over those verses. The Bible is our standard. It's enough. Okay. How am I doing? 9.15. Ten minutes left. You're hanging with me? What's going on? Is it? I hope it's all right that I point out kind of those other things that are going on because I think it's good for you to be equipped and when you see those things, then you, then you know. God doesn't require us to believe anything about himself or his redemptive work not found in Scripture. Collections of alleged sayings of Jesus, lost gospels, etc. You get a lot of this today. Newsweek, U.S. News, the gospel, you know, the, 
the stories of Jesus that were kept out of the Bible and all that stuff. And uh, the Da Vinci Code is kind of a fraudulent attempt to do that, but there are other people who do that. And, and those, uh, when we got into canon, I talked about that a little bit. There are other stories in the ancient world about things Jesus did when he was a child and all this, but I don't think you ever have to read them. I've read some of them just for historical interest and research and meanings of words and things, but um, I don't believe any of them. They may or may not be true because Jesus, a lot of people heard Jesus and they kind of remembered things, better or worse, but what God wants us to believe is here. Somebody gave me a tape once, a guy who died and went to heaven. Then he came back. And he was telling what it was like. Well, maybe. I don't know. That, I, who's to say? But I don't have to believe it. And my Christian life isn't hurt if I don't hear it. All right? What I, what I need to know about heaven, God has told me here. Okay? No modern revelations from God are to put on a level equal to Scripture and authority. We talked about that last week. And people make mistakes when they start thinking, oh, God has told me something and I'm sure of it. And then they... They don't keep it subject to Scripture. They, they can be really led astray. Nothing is sin that is not forbidden by Scripture, either explicitly or by implication. To be blameless is to walk in the law of the Lord. And this gives us a lot of freedom from long lists of rules. And I said that last week. Scottsdale Bible Church doesn't have a whole long list of rules of what you have to do apart from just obeying the Bible. Some churches do, but I think that oftentimes those go beyond the Bible. Nothing is required of us by God. Oh, and then Mormons. You can't drink coffee or caffeine. Well, that's, see, you can't get that out of the Bible. I just, I just don't. See, that's the tendency of cults is to add rules that aren't there in the Bible. Uh, number six, nothing is required of us by God that is not commanded in Scripture, either explicitly or by implication. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. It is, there's there's um, I shall walk in a wide place. It's a picture of having freedom to be obedient to God within the bounds of his word. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. There's peace from knowing what God wants you to do and then doing it. Not always having anxiety in your mind that maybe there's more stuff that God wanted me to do that he hasn't told me about, that I've got to somehow find some secret document someplace that God wants me to do. No, just obey this and uh, know the peace and blessing that comes from it. All right? And then finally, we should emphasize what Scripture emphasizes and be content with what God has told us in Scripture. Avoid making obscure portions of Scripture into major doctrines. Mormons, again, I think are guilty of that, where they make this baptism for the dead. It's just mentioned one verse in 1 Corinthians 15. There's no other information about what in the world it meant, and they make it into a major teaching. And I, I think that's not the, emphasis, the way the Bible wants us to emphasize what is there in the Scripture. The things that are revealed, these are good. They belong to us and to our children forever, that we can do them. These things are good. And this, this, so this is a wonderful doctrine. It means if you, if, you, if you want to know what to do about a difficult situation with relatives or children, or grandchildren, or neighbors, or business partners, or something like that. If you want to know what to do about guidance in life in general, this is the place to look. It's good. It's enough. Focus your attention here. And it's just amazing how much wisdom there is that God has put here. That's the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Okay, I think I'm not, uh, I'm not going to do those questions. 
I wanted to see if you have, I've got just a few minutes here that we can interact if you want to. And um, um, Jerry? John. Yeah, John. In, in, in C1A on the first page, yep. we were talking more about the uh, doctrine of dependency does not apply to God. And isn't that where all of these other things start? Because they claim that some head of another religion yeah. has heard. Yes. Okay. And if you leave, that's the door that's left just a yep. bit open. Okay. John is at C1A. I'm just repeating because it's because the noise in the room that makes it hard for it to hear. C1A, the doctrine of Scripture doesn't imply that God cannot any, add any more words. Don't all these other religions say that God appeared to these people? Yes. Uh, Islam, God appeared to Muhammad. Mormonism, God appeared to Joseph Smith. Yes, they do. They say that God added. My answer to that is, the final and greatest revelation of God was in his son. And so that's what we have in here. And because Jesus was both God and man, no mere human prophet is ever going to be greater, and so that's the final revelation that God has given us until Jesus comes back. That'll still be revelation in Jesus himself. So it really is a Christ-centered answer to Mormons and Muslims. It's saying Jesus is the greatest revelation of God. Don't add to that. Okay? That's good. good addition there. What else? Gunter. There's something always like I see a hole in the story of the talents. It probably points more towards me than the <laughs> Okay. But uh, let's say somebody got five talents or one or two. Yeah. And he invested in Enrock right at the peak. Yep. Okay. Okay, I'm going to just I'll keep just hold it a second. Gunter's sake. In this parable of the talents, let's say somebody got five talents or two million dollars and invested in Enron right at the peak. Okay. <laughs> he did his best. He did his best. Play that it's going to double or triple. Yep. Here. Yep. Uh, and even if you were watchful, he lost. And he lost everything. What happened? It was less than he started. With. Yeah. What if it was less than he started with? That's missing. Yeah. That. <laughs> now what am I going to say about that, Gunter? <laughs> okay. Um, I take the parable of the talents to be teaching that we should be faithful stewards of what God gives us. So God has given me an opportunity to teach here. I think I have to be faithful in teaching here. And um, if he's given you know, others of you responsibility for family members or neighbors or friends or ministering to friends or ministering in other parts of the church or whatever, be faithful with what he's given you. And whether there's apparent blessing or failure from the world's perspective, in a way, once we're faithful, that's for God. That's that's up to God to decide. And um, you know, there are missionaries who labor for a long time in very hard countries and don't see much fruit. So uh, sometimes God, you know, He gives us different responsibilities in different areas. Just be faithful and leave the results to Him. <laughs> What's your name? John. John. Uh, Catholic. What justification in the Catholic Bible for all the so-called extra books that you just never read? Yes. 
you know, what, what justification in the Catholic Bible for the, third, I think it's is the 13 or 15 books of the Apocrypha that came between the Old and New Testament. There are, those were first approved in 1546, declared to be part of the Bible by a, a church council. And um, there, Protestants and Catholics just uh, agree to disagree on this. The Catholics say that the church produced the Bible and therefore it can produce more or can make other things to be the Bible. And Protestants say, no, God gave certain books that were inspired by God or breathed out by God, and those were those were God's words, and that the Jewish people at the time of the New Testament agreed that it was just those books that we have now, and Jesus and the New Testament teachers didn't quote those other books. So those were the ones that God gave, and we don't have any right to add to them. All we do is recognize them, but we can't make more books to be the Bible. So there's a difference in how they argue for it. Um, there's a little more to that history, but um, that's basically how do you, what gets something to be a Bible. Do we just recognize what God has made to be the Bible, or does God give the church the ability to make something be the Bible? And the Catholics would say that, the latter. And so that's how they add those extra books. Good. Way over here, Gene. Just an observation. The Orthodox Church considers them as part of their Bible, but without the authority of Scripture. Yeah. And read for edification. Yeah. The interesting situation is, I guess, most of the world's Christians have it in their Bible. You know, but you know, focus on, I guess, that is considered authoritative by the Orthodox and the Catholics to <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, Gene's saying the Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox have those other books in their Bible. And that's because they were written in Greek, not in Hebrew. Uh, that, that is the other Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And um, and they were they were part thought for use, but but they think they're useful but not part of the Bible. Yeah. Okay, what else? What's your name? Kurt, yeah. How would you define a cult? Would it, would it be an organization that adds to the words? Oh, boy. How would I define a cult? This is going to be a real first guess, and then I'd have to work on it some more. But it's, it's a group that if you, believe, if you belong and believe what they teach, you can't be saved, or you won't be saved. Um, and uh, um, that's, that's a rough and ready definition. Um, that is, it's it's not a true church. It's not a true church with some fault, some uh, incorrect teaching, but it's it's just so far outside that it really shouldn't be called a genuine church. And I realize that maybe some of you come from, or have friends and relatives in a Christian Science or Mormon background, especially in this area, a lot of Mormons. But uh, just with respect, I would still disagree and say that what is taught in Mormonism isn't, it's so inconsistent with what is taught in the Bible about God, about Christ, about salvation, that I would call it a cult, not not another Protestant group or something like that. Okay. Mark. Ecclesiastes have some principles to your Okay. <laughs> All right, Mark's getting into investment principles here um, on uh, talents. I think I'm not going to, I think I'm, um, yes, but I think, I think I'm not going to go there right now. Uh, yes, about dividing 
dividing your things. okay, okay let's ah let's ah sing and we'll be done.